I think it's great if you're friends, but it should not be the criteria that leads you to start a, a company together. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Cedric, great to see you again. Let me quickly introduce you. You are the founder of Tomahawk.vc, uh, an investment firm, basically. You're also yourself an early stage investor, obviously, an entrepreneur and also an essentialist, as you call yourself. And legend actually has it that you started your first venture when you were just 14 years old. What was that all about? Yeah, that was an interesting time and uh, makes me feel very old now thinking back. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's 18 years ago now. Um, back then, I, I didn't, it was a friend of mine and, uh, and me that started that first company and we didn't set out to start a startup. Um, what it was is we were both passionate about building websites and um, allowing people to showcase their company, their product and whatnot, their services online. And uh, started building websites on the weekend, first for our Boy Scouts chapter. Um, that's how we got to know one another. And then from there, it kind of spun out into its own business. Um, I was still in school. He had uh, just finished his professional apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. uh, he's four years older. And yeah, the, it was a very fun journey. Uh, lots of challenges, lots of uh, fuck-ups as well back then. Some bigger, some smaller. And uh, this first business was an agency business. And what I liked about it is a it allowed me to make a lot of mistakes. Because when you have a product business, I think if you mess it up once, it could potentially ruin the whole company. But for, mm -hmm. with an agency business, you might ruin a client relationship, but typically uh, you'll have more chances to rebuild. And uh, yeah, so that, that was back then. Got it. So we heard about your first baby steps, basically, as an entrepreneur, but you're also very, very well known as an essentialist. So you are well known for owning only 64 things. What impact did that decision have on your life? Because that's a very uncommon way of living life. Uh, so there were a few events or a few inflection points that led me to give away more and more. But in general, what I realized is that my possessions started to possess me. They started to take time for me and energy and focus. And uh, I was lucky that early in my life, when I was like 20, 21, I realized what I really want to focus on and uh, go very deep in my life is this process of how do I take an idea from idea stage to where it's a self-sustaining company. And uh, realizing that early also allowed me to really focus on, on that because I realized that's what makes me happy if I progress in that. And... Uh, yeah, then it became easy to give things away, to be become more free, to travel more. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, to this day, it feels like a very natural decision. It was not, um, I, I know the number has been mentioned over and over again, um, but it was not, for me, it was not about getting down to 64 things. For me, it was about freeing my mind and focusing on the things that were important to me at the time. Makes sense. But still people remember you because of these 64 things. And I think that's also not a too bad side effect of the whole thing. You mentioned traveling. You were active as a parallel entrepreneur, as you described yourself, involved in multiple projects at the same time. But then you actually decided to switch to the investor role full-time, founded Tomahawk.vc. Why did you decide to make that switch before we jump into fuck up? I just think it's important to give people the context there. Yeah, um, no, I, I mean, I started angel investing seven years ago. Um, and after doing that for two years, uh, so 2014 till 2016 full time, I uh, 
A, I, I, I thought I had learned a lot about the process and I became kind of itchy. I wanted to jump back into the driver's seat and, and build companies myself. Did that between 2016 and 2019. Had a ton of fun, um, lots of learnings. And one of the realizations that I've had was, was one of the last projects that I worked on. We got pretty quickly to 100 and plus people. And as a kid, I think I always had this dream of building a company that has thousands of employees and a big tower somewhere, a big office building. And over time, I realized that that's not really what I want to do. Um, I, I'm a lot happier in a small team that can create a lot of value. Um, ideally, I can speak to everyone in the team one-on-one -on -one every single week. And so that kind of limits it to less than 20 people. Um, I, I thought about how can I still scale myself? How can I still create a lot of value? And I think being an investor, being a coach, being someone that is on the journey with the entrepreneur, that's, that's a way to scale myself and create a lot of value. Mm -hmm. So that's the logical part, but then emotionally it was kind of hard because I, I realized I was a good investor and I was kind of, that, that's the role that fits me. At the same time, I always saw the entrepreneur in my value system is like up here. And then the investor for a large part was just a necessary evil on the journey of the entrepreneur. Right. And if you could somehow circumvent it, you would. Mm -hmm. And that kind of put me on a track. And I actually went to um, Nepal uh, for a couple of months uh, back in 2019 when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And uh, what I realized is that if, if I become an, an investor that I would have wanted to partner with as an entrepreneur, um, that would create a lot of value and then, then it feels right. And so one thing that we do with Tomahawk.vc is we, we try to be extremely open and transparent. We try to open source all our handbooks, all our processes, so that it does become easier for the entrepreneur to raise money and make it a more enjoyable process than it has sometimes been for me in the past. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy. At the same time, I once uh, listened to a podcast of Naval Ravikant, one of the people that I really do admire. And he said that, you know, being an entrepreneur yourself is just so much more rewarding, but you will eventually burn out in the long run if you do that forever. However, on the other hand, investor, being an investor, you could actually do that part-time, not that you do that, but eventually you could do it. And it's just something that gives you way more leverage uh, later down the road. So in that regard, how do you now, you know, compare the two roles that you had? Which one is more rewarding for you? So there, there's a lot of things that uh, they share in the sense that in Tomok, we also think about who are our customers? How do we get to them? How do we get to the right founders? Yeah. What is the right team? How do we build our team? How do we do sales? How do we reach out to founders? Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also different challenges. Um, whereas founder, as a founder, I often felt like all the weight is on my shoulders. Now it's a different challenge, which is sometimes I feel like I'm a coach and I see something is going wrong and I mention it. But in the end, I'm not in control. I need to be able to let go. I need to be able to stay on the sidelines and also support the entrepreneur no matter which way they decide to go. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that's one challenge that was often hard for me at the beginning. And the second one, I think, is uh, focusing, uh, and this might sound harsh, but I think you're going to be a lot healthier if you focus on the startups or the companies in your portfolio that do well, instead of trying to save the ones that don't do well. And I don't mean abandon ship with that, but uh, just in my nature, um, what I've learned as an angel investor when I was very active early on with our portfolio, 
I would naturally spend a lot more time with the companies that weren't doing so well and trying to save that investment instead of focusing on the ones that do really well and helping them scale even more. And luckily, right. I am in a business where it's not like private equity where every single investment kind of needs to work out. I'm in a business where three out of 10 or two out of 10 companies need to work out. And so um, in theory, I knew that. It, emotionally, it was hard to put that to practice for a long time and still is sometimes. I can imagine. And talking about focus, what is actually your investment focus with Tomahawk? So we've sharpened it. We started in 2019 and our focus then was global first companies, which meant companies that built a culture that worked both for in-office employees as well as for remote employees. Because mm -hmm. I felt the future of a success, like the Successful companies of the future were ones that leveraged a global talent pool. Now, what we've seen last year with COVID, pretty much any company now fit our investment criteria. So it was way too big. We saw a lot last year, but it be also became tiring and we realized we couldn't go as deep as we wanted. And so what we did is in Q4 of last year, we went through a number of exercises to sharpen our focus. And now we are 100% focused on fintech and decentralized finance. Uh, ventures. What does that exactly mean for somebody listening or watching yeah. to this? Yeah, so fintech for us means any company that touches a payment stream um, typically means modernizing traditional banking products and services. And then decentralized finance means reinventing those traditional products and services mm -hmm. on decentralized infrastructure. So something like Ethereum, where you could build it with smart contracts. Got it. And before we jump into your first fuck up that we want to talk about today, is there any specific company or any specific success story that you worked on with Tomahawk so far that you'd like to highlight here before we actually talk about the fuck-ups? Yeah, one, one company that I spend a lot of time with right now is Liquidity. Liquidity is a borrowing and lending protocol on the blockchain, so that, that fits the DeFi bucket. Right. Um, we did, Robert, who's the founder, we did his uh, pre-seed round about one and a half years ago. Um, they... They were on an incredible journey. It's also his first venture, so he's, he's, he's seen a very steep learning curve. And they're about to go live in the next couple of weeks. Um, so it's just a very exciting time right now. Um, also with the market being where it is right now, um, with the world definitely needing better lending and borrowing protocols. So I'm, I'm super excited for them to, uh, to go live. Also because they've built most of their team of about 10 people without ever meeting in person. Oh, nice. Um, so going through all that struggle and going through that very steep learning curve, I think, is, a, is an achievement of its own. Absolutely. So now we're here for the fuck-ups. Yes. Let's dive in. We travel back to 2011. You spent some time in Hong Kong. Um, I think it was part of your exchange semester that yes. you did there. How was the startup scene and life in Hong Kong back then? How did that look like? So the university I went to in Hong Kong was inspired by the American system. And just through that, I feel um, they had entrepreneurship classes, which I didn't have um, at the time at ETH Zurich. I think they introduced it right after. Um, and I did join one of those classes, and I was pretty positively surprised to hear about the uh, state-sponsored initiatives that encouraged entrepreneurs to start their own companies and to bring ideas to life. Um, but it also felt like very new. I don't think Hong Kong had a long history of building big companies. Mm -hmm. 
or let me re- building startups. I right. think yes. uh, there's big financial companies, but startups was definitely not at the core of the Hong Kong DNA. So I think it was a very interesting time being there. Um, in a sense, I think the university and the academic environment, everyone kind of everyone was excited about startups, but there was very few real life examples that you could go and like chat with. Yeah. I, I probably met like five startups within the six, seven months that I that I spent in Hong Kong. Okay. So you said, hey, let's start my own company. So you co-founded an online tailor also in 2011. Please walk us through the early days. Why was the timing right to start an online tailor in Hong Kong in 2011? Yeah, so I was um, studying with about 250 other exchange students, some of them also being there for one semester. Others had come for the whole uh, program. And uh, one of them, uh, let's call him Gabriel, and I became friends uh, through playing rugby. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't go back now, but back then I still (laughs) thought uh, I would make a rugby player. Kind of liked it. And so we became friends. And then about midway through the semester, he told me about his idea. He had previously studied in mainland China. He had traveled a lot around the region. Um, He was originally French. Mm-hmm. and had a sense for fashion. And he thought that there might be an arbitrage opportunity to uh, sell in Central Europe, uh, starting in France, uh, tailored shirts, tailored suits, mostly for men at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. The idea was to also do women later on, um, but produce it in Southeast Asia, Thailand, namely. Right. And I started to look at the market. Um, At the time, there were some companies that were pretty big. There was one that was called, I think, Indochino. There was U-Tailor, I think a German company, and probably five, six more. Um, So it felt like that was the idea of that year. Um, We were kind of inspired and and infected by the energy around that and and decided to at least embark on the idea journey and, and think a bit about how would we set this up and how would this all work. Right. And you were actually five co-founders in total. And then at some point also realized, hey, although it's an interesting market, we're not a triple A team. How do you actually realize that the team, although it might have looked like a good team in the beginning, wasn't a triple A team? Yeah, so... so um Gabriel and I, we had very different, um, you could say complementary um, personalities and skill sets. And we started working on the idea while we were still in our studies. And then towards the end of the semester, we decided to take this for a spin and see if we could launch it and raise some money. That would actually be the ideal setup, right? Complementary skill sets, you know each other a bit from university, did probably some projects together. So that's like a very promising start. Yes. So maybe just to um, reference that point, I think... I'm always looking for complementary teams, teams when I invest, yeah. but I also want to see them um, be able to retreat to like a meta level where they can always talk to one another. And I think that's what uh, Gabriel and I missed is that we didn't have this place that we could go back to and have an open, direct, honest conversation mm-hmm. um, where we would be completely in sync. Um, yeah. Something that I've seen with other founders in other ventures that I started um, that was crucial to making the complementary founder skill set and personality um, a success. Um, so, so going back to what what happened back, and, and you can already sense it now that the fuck up theme for me was communication. Um, back then, I, I think that's where it broke down. We we had a good market. I think we had a an idea of an interesting product. Mm-hmm. Um, we were two founders at the beginning, and then he added three 
people from his environment. So it became a bit unbalanced in terms of personality. Um, then we set off to start. Um, he, I think he stayed in Hong Kong. I went back to Europe. I think I was in London at the time. Um, and we were already working remote for most of the time, at least me and the rest of the team. Them, uh, they were sometimes in one and the same place, which must have helped with communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty quickly after we set out to start this, um, there, I could sense that there was some friction. And I remember thinking in my head, this is probably not a triple A team for this, maybe not even a double A team. But the timing is so good and the idea is so good and the market is so good. I'm just going to forget what everyone has told me about how the team is the one single most crucial asset in an early stage venture. And I still went into it. I think these points, you know, it, it's so hard. You hear that over and over again, right? Team is so important. But then when it comes to your own, very own startup company, it's still super difficult to actually follow through. You're, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I guess... I always like to say um, uh, smart people learn from their mistakes, wise people learn from others. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that second part is so hard to do. Yeah. Um, I feel I've gotten better over the years just accepting that certain things have been tried often enough that I don't need to redo it. And I, I've um, started to also spend a lot more time just talking about what I'm going to do before I jump in and, and get started on any initiative. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a learning that I had to make firsthand on an emotional level and uh, also, uh, I guess, uh, go through the pain that came with it. Right. And how did that make you feel when you actually found out, hey, we're not a triple A, maybe not even a, a double A team. How did that make you feel? Did you feel frustrated or did you think, oh no, don't worry, we can still make it as you then overlooked basically the team component? Or how did that really make you feel when you actually realized that point? So I think there, there's a few things that happened uh, for me. Number one is I did not communicate to the rest of the team or anyone else. I thought, I'll just keep this in my head. And I mean, it's also hard, right, to know. Like these things, like right. especially at the beginning of your journey, I, I didn't have the gut feeling or I didn't know how to trust my gut feeling like I do now. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that I that I think was a big mix or problem is that I thought, oh, I, I know it better than some, some of them. And mm -hmm. so I'm just going to push through it. I'm just going to enforce my opinion in yeah. some cases, and I'm going to show them that I'm right. And obviously, that, that was not a good recipe to, uh, to go about it, especially given that we were in a remote setup. Everything was kind of uh, in a bit of that, the usual state of chaos that you have at the beginning of a startup. Yeah. Um, we did raise some money. I think we raised about 100K, um, uh, the equivalent of about 100K euros from a Chinese investor. Mm -hmm. Um, and we got started. Um, but then it started to go south um, pretty quickly. I think I stayed on board for a year after we got that money in. Yeah. Um, and we did never end up launching our actual product. We did start to sell suits and shirts and uh, other products that we were selling. Mm -hmm. But we did it in a very manual way. And I think that's where it comes back to the different ideas that Gabriel and I had. Mm -hmm. He, I think, had the... Um, expectation to do this in a very one-by-one, one. like he could meet every client, spend an hour with each client going through the process, perfectly measuring them. Whereas I wanted to build a scalable product. That was the only thing that was interesting to me. I was not interested in building a tailor shop that had its uh, factory somewhere half across the world. I was interested in building something that was a lot more scalable. 
Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, a company that managed a journey from startup to IPO and delivers meal kits directly to your home. Being an entrepreneur often means I work late hours and come home without a clue of what's for dinner. I end up eating some greasy takeout and regretting it soon after. And that's why HelloFresh is an entrepreneur's best friend. It delivers a box full of fresh ingredients and delicious recipes straight to your door. No minimum term, no obligations. I was able to choose my preferred meals on their website and within just a few days I received everything I needed to cook the meal, including a nicely designed and easy to follow recipe. The delivery not only saves me time from going to the grocery store, but also from the whole planning process and researching what to cook. I tried a few different dishes and ordered the larger box to be able to prepare some additional meals for the week ahead. I especially love the chili noodles in my last box. My verdict so far? It's delicious. The recipes are easy and fast to cook and taste really good. It's fresh and all the ingredients are high quality, often organic and super fresh. They also come in the perfect size, so there's no food waste. And it's also balanced. You can choose and adapt from a variety of diets, from vegan to low carb and much more, to find the perfect fit for your lifestyle. Try HelloFresh for yourself. Head over to hellofresh.ch and use the code HelloSwiss, all in capital letters, for a total of an 85 Swiss franc discount distributed on your first three boxes. And that's basically also a bit linked to communication as a fuck up, but there you also realized, hey, we're not only not a triple A team, but you and your most important co-founder also have different goals in life and what you want to do with the company. So I also wonder like the impact of that, what what did that do to you? You know, first you realize, okay, we're not a triple A team, but I still continue because the market is interesting. And then you realize you actually want different things as co-founders with the same company that you're both working for. It's definitely when the friction started, when it was when it became hard. Um, I did try to communicate. Okay. Um, how how did you do that? To be frank, I think I've blocked a lot out from that episode, so I can't tell you the exact situation or how I went about it. Uh, one thing that I can tell you is that it's uh, it's been ten years, and since then I've 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 been on. A learning curve that was almost vertical uh, when it comes to communication in my role as investor, but also in my later uh, ventures. Um, I I think I just try to have arguments instead of sitting down and just sharing my view. I think we had a lot of arguments. Whereas um, w- one scene that I remember is um, th- this online website, right? Was basically an e-commerce store, um, and right. you could configure your suit. On one hand, you had to enter about 15 different measurements from mm-hmm. like your shoulder to your uh, elbow to you, the end of your arm yeah. and so forth. So that was already a lengthy process and hard to get people motivated to do that at home. On the other hand, um, we added about, I think it was 17 steps that you could just use to configure your suit, like the style of your lapels, the fabric, um, the, uh, the inside of your suit. And I mean, to go through it just on paper took you about 60 minutes. So total conversion killer. And so my push was always to break it down to maybe like three classic types, right? So you could, you could use like a base configuration and then you could still go in and, and um, change certain parts of the configuration, but you would start with a base model. And, uh, and we had discussions about that for days, whereas we're 
Gabriel just thought we should take exactly the process that he would go through with a client in real life and put that on the website. And so that's led to a lot of delays. Um, then, of course, at some point, the blame game started where he accused me of not delivering on time for the website. I started to accuse him of not um, uh, being uh, open to the process that we need to follow in order to finally bring the product life. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was kind of, it was definitely a bad environment. Um, it was not very constructive. Um, lots that I've learned from that, just thinking back of how we acted back then. And then in addition to that, I think was what, broke it for me in the end was that I could see how he treated some of our freelancers and other and employees to some degree mm -hmm. where he would defer payment um, intentionally and so I also and I think that's where it broke for me is I lost respect for him because yeah. I can always I actually enjoy a debate right I enjoy if someone has a different opinion and is willing to challenge me yes. but it was hard when I lose the respect for someone and if I just truly don't think we're a good fit for this project anymore. Um, I think that's when it became really sour for me. And then he eventually decided to actually leave the company. So I wonder how did he actually reach that conclusion? Because that's a big step to take. Probably the last resort that you can take as a co-founder. I'm done, I'm leaving. I think at a time I, I looked for new projects to think, it's almost like a bad breakup where you, in your mind, you're already with someone new before you break up with the old with the person that right. you're together right now. And in a way, it was uh, similar for me, where I thought a lot about what am I going to work on next, um, how I'm going to keep myself busy. And then once I had already like one or two additional projects taken on, one or two additional projects, that's when I said I was out. Yeah. Got it. And, you know, when a project like that doesn't work out, I can imagine that this also does something to you. You feel like, hey, I'm a failure maybe, or maybe the others fail, but for sure you're not going out there happy and full of energy. So I wonder, what did that do to you first? And how did you then handle to come back stronger after that? Yeah, so I did not handle it uh, gracefully at all. I mean, my, my fuck-up is definitely how I left that company. Because um, okay. what I did is... Um, the, the company owed me money. I had uh, paid for certain expenses mm -hmm. and I had asked uh, Gabriel to pay me back before I would leave. And I could see he was employing his tactics of delaying payment and this and that. And so at the time when I, when I left, I, I used the company card to order some, <laughs> it was Apple hardware at the time. Yeah. Very stupid move. Um, but I just felt, hey, I'm owed like four grand. It was a very small sum. I don't remember the exact number, but it was less than $10,000. And I wired myself that uh, money in hardware from Apple. Very stupid idea. I felt really bad the moment I did it. Um, but what I did is I, I did that on a, I think it was a Thursday night. And then the next morning I left on a trip to Rome for like four or five days. And uh, back then I didn't have connection when I was traveling abroad. Mm -hmm. And so it was probably four, 24 hours later when I logged into Facebook and saw all these messages on my wall accusing me of like being the worst scam in wow. the history of companies. And so uh, Gabriel went out there and mobilized his friends to basically uh, blackmail. Like I got some threats via messages as well. And it was a pretty shocking experience. Yeah. Um, I... 
I ended up returning everything, um, giving up on whatever money was owed to me, gave all my shares, signed over all my shares, mm-hmm. just didn't want to have anything to do with that environment anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I think I blocked it out for almost a year. Um, it was very hard for me to talk or think about it. I mm-hmm. felt ashamed. I felt like I, I was a fraud. I felt like just all the, the worst feelings. And I think it was only after about a year when I had talked through it with a friend. And in hindsight, that's because you ask, what would I, what have I learned? I, I would share a lot earlier. I would find a place where I can just air my thoughts. And it's not even that I wanted feedback or advice. I just wanted, I just needed to get out of my head because it was a toxic environment. Um, yeah, it took me about a year. And then I think we also connected about... Uh, one and a half or two years later and kind of made up and realized we had both made stupid mistakes and it was all not worth it. Um, I uh, I didn't follow the company. I, I think they kept trying uh, for a long time. Um, they built more of a traditional tailor service. But I think after a few years, they gave up, um, is my understanding. I'm not super close with them, but I do. Uh, I mean, it's not like we're avoiding each other. We just live very different lives in very different Fair parts point. of the world. Yeah. I think that's a natural way of how things go, actually. Um, yeah, in, in that regard, uh, I think it's very impressive that you actually took the time and talked things out. I think that's very important to really say, okay, I closed this chapter for good. And at the same time, I could also imagine in, in, instead of you know doubting yourself and feeling like a failure, you could have also been very angry at them, right? Um, it, was that just the first phase and then it changed to the more I I think even though I wasn't great at communicating I've I, I still was reflective and I knew that I I had my fair share of problems that I introduced or um, yeah. that I was as much part of the problem as I tried to be part of the solution so I wasn't, it wasn't so much anger it's more disappointment I think that okay. we had gone that we had kind of let this business that was not going to work out anyway ruin our friendship that we have built at the beginning. Um, and, and maybe you asked me what I've learned from it. Um, one, one big takeaway and how I put it into practice is that you, I think it's great if you're friends, but it should not be the criteria that leads you to start a, a company together. I think you want to be very conscious of what the roles are, what your expectations are. Mm-hmm. And then if you can, you should also put yourself in an environment where you're not comfortable and you still have to make do. What I mean by that, so to give you an example, with Tomok, we added a, um, another partner last year, which is not 100% the same as adding a co-founder. I think the co-founder relationship is extremely strong, but right. also being a partner in an investment business means we're going to have business together for the next 15, 20 years if we want or not. And we got along great uh, from the start, but I really wanted to make sure we're also under pressure and we see how we operate and communicate in that environment. And so we took time for about six months. We went on various challenges. Some were fun. Others were a bit more challenging where we fasted uh, together for a while and we went out and pushed ourselves physically during that and just put us in a place where we were kind of miserable and still try to achieve stuff together. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I, I feel when you're tired a lot, when you're very tired, you I personally get closer to my edge and I might say stuff that I otherwise would have a filter for. Um, and that, at least so far, worked very well. I think we've, we've 
really aligned. We gotten to, lo- to know each other really, really well uh, during a short amount of time. And we also understand that we don't have to be best friends and we don't have to merge our circle of friends, that it's fun to spend time together outside work. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't necessarily want to create an environment where um, we mixed it to too much, more than necessary. Got it. Yeah, I think it's crucial to spend time together before you actually jump into business. That's just, it can avoid so much travel later down the road. So if you were to actually summarize your three core takeaways from that fuck up that we just uh, talked through together, what would that be? The, the three core takeaways that you would do differently today or that you would give as well-meant recommendation to other people? Maybe they still have to go through the fuck up themselves to really you know, make the learning and, and understand it. But what are the three key takeaways that you would give to people listening and watching to this? Number one for me is when I sense that the team is not right, I bring it to the table immediately, be it with an investment or when I get into business or some sort of long-term relationship uh, myself. I'd say second is create space to communicate these kind of emotions Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm also aware that I've made this learning and for me it's now clear, but I want to protect someone or I want to make sure that someone that comes into a company that I'm part of and has a similar feeling like I had, uh, that they do not uh, feel the same way and, and keep it to themselves. So we have a, a lot of like regular one-on-ones or feedback sessions mm-hmm. or realignment sessions that we do where we just talk very openly and we make it clear that it's okay to talk very openly, that anything is allowed. And then third, um, maybe stop when it's not fun anymore. Um, for me... Uh, that was the clearest sign when my God just my heart just wasn't in it anymore, and I tried to push through it with my head. Yeah, um, I've just never seen it go well, and life's too short to, um, especially if you have the opportunity to spend it on something that makes you miserable. Right, it's, all of our, all of us are going to be so much more successful if we do something where we're where it's fun. That that's yeah. fun for us. Absolutely. And don't like mistake the, the roller coaster that you'll go through oh, yeah. as something that is just not fun. That's part of the game, but you will feel it if it's not fun anymore. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think hard times are part of the game. It's what makes uh, uh, a diamond dynamite, right? All this pressure. Yeah. Um, but just if, if you're just miserable, and I think miserable is very different from being under pressure. Um, right. I, that, that's the moment to, to look for options. Makes sense. Maybe to close this session, you actually wrote down a very beautiful sentence about failing, but also success and how they have a relationship with each other. Can you, do you mind sharing it yeah, here? Yeah, of course. Um, I, the way I see my life is that um, failure is where I learn and then success is what pays for my school of life, which is those failures. So, so the successes allow me to go through these failures. They yeah. allow me to not get stranded somewhere on the way. And so I think making mistakes is, is nothing bad at all. Um, for me, that, I, would, I would say they've, they've defined me a lot more than the things that went right. Yeah. And um, to some degree, that was very hard, like in this case where there's lots of uh, sleepless nights involved. But also, I wouldn't be here uh, talking to you now if, if that wasn't part of my journey. And so I, I've, I've learned to appreciate the failures. Makes sense. I think to put in your words, you said failure is where I learn and success is what allows me to learn yes. more. Yeah. I think yeah. 
that's a beautiful way to end today's session. Thank you so much, Cedric, for sharing the fuck up and your learnings. <laughs> and I wish you lots of success with everything you do. It's always great fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Selvan. We're very excited to announce the launch of our newest initiative, the Swisspreneur Coaching Package. We're giving you the chance to learn directly from our podcast guests and other experts from our network. People who have already successfully accomplished all the things you're currently struggling with. Through the Swisspreneur Coaching Package, you can book coaches who would not otherwise be available for a total of four hours of coaching. We believe in the five founders, four founders mentality, and that's why we've rounded up the best of the best. Apply now to work with the coach of your dreams at swisspreneur.org slash coaching.